Hi, this is Daniel Murray, Deputy CIO and Global Head of Research at EFG Asset Management. I'm standing here for Moe's as host of the Beyond the Benchmark podcast this week. I'm very happy to have with me Chris Watling, who's CEO and Chief Market Strategist of Longview. Uh, Chris, could you start off just by telling us a bit about yourself, your background and your career? Yeah. Um, hi, Dan. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a trained economist, market strategist. I set up Longview Economics 17 years ago. So we're an independent research and asset allocation house and advise institutions and, and private banks and hedge funds around the world on on how they go about uh, thinking about investing their money and, and, and some suggestions for how they should do that. I mean, my background has really been mostly in the city. I, I trained originally as an accountant back in the early 90s and flipped quickly into Casanova, where I was for almost a decade doing all sorts of bits and pieces um, as an analyst, equity analyst, bit of corporate finance, and then some, some economics and strategy before uh, a very brief stint elsewhere and then setting up this business in, in 2003. So yeah, I, I love markets. I'm fascinated by financial history. Uh, I'm fascinated in the way markets work and, and, uh, enjoy, enjoy trying to help people, um, boost their returns. Well, certainly as long-term clients of yours, we're always very happy to hear your views and thoughts on things and to chew things over with you. So perhaps that's a good uh, way to start our discussion. I think that clearly we're living in exceptional times and COVID and has had a really unusual impact on the global economy. Uh, it's pretty common to think about the way that the cycle is playing out in terms of a letter of the alphabet, U, V, W or, or something else. What are your thoughts about um, the shape of the global economy and how it's going to pan out over the next few months and years? Well, I'm tempted to say we need some new letters, but um, but um, maybe we but maybe we just need to look broader, pick up some Greek ones. But um, no, for choice, I think for me it's probably actually closer to a V. I, I, I was quite worried about the W a few months ago as we came out of this, but it seems to me the uh, policymakers are so resolute in their determination to make sure the stimulus keeps on coming, and of course the size of it has been so huge that I think the V is the sort of most likely outcome. Now, and now probably the sort of top part of the V is not going to be as, as steep as the first part of the V, if you like. So Q3 growth is, I think, looking at about 25, 30% on an annualized basis in the States at the moment, I think are the rough estimates, but that pace of growth can't continue. But, but I think the, 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 the um, influence, the sort of, um, uh, what what the Im implication of a V is probably the right letter. And I, I, I take one stat, I think, that adds to that. If you look at the amount of cash in household bank accounts in the States, for example, it's now $2.1 trillion up from where it was at the end of last year. And you can, al you can almost make the comment that without a pandemic, households would have about $1.5 trillion less cash in their bank accounts. So, so what, what the policy response has done is it's provided a lot of rocket fuel that's basically sitting there, I think, waiting for uh, normalization of the economy and probably a successful vaccine if it's going to come to spark potentially really quite good growth in 2021. So, so, so for me, it'd probably be a V. Okay. Well, thanks. Well, that's, that's pretty optimistic outlook, certainly more optimistic than some people out there. What about, you know, if that's the short term outlook, what do you think of the longer term implications of the COVID crisis? Do you think we just get a, you know, uh, this V-shaped recovery and then it's a return to normality? Or do you think there'll be any longer term consequences of what we're living through this year? 
Yeah, I think there's a ton of them. I think the best way to think about it is to contextualize the longer term in um, in the in the terms of the debt super cycle and and the and the different phases of monetary policy that we've had. And to 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 quote Ray Dalio on this, I think he's good on this on this debt super cycle stuff. We're kind of in that third phase of monetary policy. So initially, you know, in the 80s and 90s, you cut rates and they did what you expected and and what they said on the tin. Then in the in in post GFC, we get into ZERP and and QE for financial markets uh, as phase two. And now I think you know we've gone beyond that. We've gone to phase three, which is really the coordination of or the effective coordination of fiscal and monetary policy looseness, and the effective basically helicopter money, or more simply put, QE for the people, rather than QE for the financial markets, which it was ten years ago. So, so I think we've had a, a, you know there are pretty serious long term implications from that. We are doing you know milton friedman's helicopter drop you're literally putting money in people's bank accounts as i said just now so uh, you know you're i think you're building the backdrop for monetary inflation and and really simplistically put too much money chasing too few goods and services which is sort of classic supply and demand um and of course too much money because you've created it out of thin air and not enough goods and services because the supply side of the economy hasn't kept up. And indeed, you know, bankruptcies has meant it shrunk somewhat. So you've got a mismatch between demand and supply, which I think means we're back into monetary style inflation over over the medium term. And and there's a lot more that goes into that. There's this sort of money velocity argument as well and the links to demographics. But yeah, I think the I think inflation's a big implication. I also think um, you know, we're quite near the end of a a long growth cycle where growth stocks have led the market. And that, you know, that tends to happen, you know, every 20, 25 years, growth stocks peak out and we flip back into a value led bull market. And I think over the next few years, we'll, we'll do that. Maybe back into next year, maybe 2022. I mean, at the moment we're in the sort of growth is, is where it's at and everything, all the sort of money momentum's going there. But at some stage, I think there'll be a flip and, and value will come to the fore commodities will come to the fore. I think we're starting a new commodity super cycle over the course of maybe now uh, and a bit like we had in the noughties and the seventies. Um, so quite a lot of things going on. I mean, liquidity, uh, a lot of big implications over the long term. a lot of changes that are brewing or, or, you know, starting to evolve right now and, and the return of inflation, which of course we haven't really seen for, for an awful long time. So can I just pick up on that that last point? Obviously, um, the natural comparison to make is with Japan, and Japan has been uh, imparting QE for much longer than most other central banks, and yet has really struggled to generate inflation. So why do you think it will be different for other countries? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I think the main difference here, and, and there, you know, there are clearly risks and arguments against this, but for me... You know, the main difference, I think, is probably that money velocity is going to start to accelerate in the States. And the reason for that is because of the demographic profile, which is very different from uh, in the States from from Japan over the last two decades. So, I mean, if you look at the U.S., I mean, if, firstly, if you think about monetary inflation, you, you know, the, the famous equation MV equals PT, Friedman's sort of it's a base uh, base. Uh, basis of his big tome uh, back in the 50s, 60s, I think it was when he wrote it. I forget exactly. But, um, you know, you need a lot of money, you need a lot of M, and you need a lot of V. And what we haven't had in the last 10 years is V. Uh, what we've got more of now is M. Uh, 
and the question is what happens to V. So the best correlation I can find for velocity of money is really uh, actually what's happening within the, the sort of growth of, of the different parts of the working age population. And in particular, if you, if you take the baby boomers, they've been dominant for the last 10 years as they've been moving towards retirement and saving a ton of money. And of course, if you're saving, you're not spending. So it's hard to get inflation. And of course, the, the, the baby boomers were the big thing in the 70s. When we last had serious inflation, they were entering the workforce, um, as you know, creating a lot of inflation uh, and driving that. Now, of course, so the baby boomers are sort of leaving the workforce and the millennials are coming. Um, and I think they're now, it's fascinating what the housing data has done in the last few um, data points. I mean, it really is extraordinarily strong over and above sort of get back, getting back what it lost in the pandemic. It's way above those levels. Um, so, you know, I think millennials are going to start forming households, taking out mortgages, borrowing money, maxing out credit cards, having babies. All of that contributes to, to the money velocity story, which, which was never a demographic profile you could have put in uh, in Japan in the last two decades. So for me, that's that's the really big difference here between America and the next 10 years in Japan in the last 20. Okay. Can I draw another comparison with Japan, or at least um, extract another question by comparing with Japan? And that relates to exiting from QE. So when the Bank of Japan started its uh, it, you know, central bank policies of expanding its balance sheet, it thought they would be temporary. It thought that at some point in the future it would be able to exit. And actually, over time, it's become apparent that it's the only game in town. Do you think other central banks will be able to exit QE? Or do you think they're stuck in the same cycle that the Bank of Japan is in? I mean, I think the conclusion of all this, so, you know, as I said, we're sort of three phases of monetary policy in the debt super cycle. For me, the conclusion and, and the exit, if you like, will be an, a new international monetary system. Um, so, you know, you look at this one post Bretton Woods, the dollar fiat system, um, the unanchored uh, system that we've had really since the early 1970s, uh, where everything's sort of run off, run off, run by the Fed and dollar fiat, as I say. Um, you know, that's that's a pretty old system now. And and if you look at the average international monetary system, it tends to last about 30, 35 years. This one, of course, is really about 50 years old now, um, way beyond its expiry date. So, and as I say, we went to the third phase of monetary policy, we're into helicopter money. That I think is going to create all sorts of problems over the next five, 10 years. And I think at some stage we'll get a new monetary system and I hope we'll get debt cancellation with that. And, and we'll be able to reset and restart uh, with a new Bretton Woods or a, whatever the new system is uh, that allows us to um, get back to some degree of normality in, in financial markets and in monetary policy. And, and also in the way it's influenced inequality. I think there's, there's, there's widespread consensus the way monetary policy has been run as has had a big impact on inequality in the last 10, 15, 20 years. So all of that can be moved beyond uh, once the system resets. And, and then the question becomes what resets it? What triggers that desire to reset? And and that's an interesting debate in and of itself. It is. What, what are your thoughts on it? <laughs> <laughs> that's just a leading point, was it? I, I mean, I think it's an incredibly difficult question to answer, but I suspect it might be... Um, maybe sovereign debt crises uh, if we really get inflation or maybe currency crises if there's a lot of liquidity printing for example to control yield curves that may cause some currency crises around the world and you know maybe or maybe for example the 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 sort of decoupling of china 
and the West. Maybe that ends up pushing the two new monetary areas and monetary regimes, and that triggers some changes. I, I don't know the answers is what I'm saying, but there are lots of potential candidates, maybe too much inflation and an inability to control really yield curves without creating more inflation, if you like, further down the line. Um, maybe that causes policymakers to reassess and reset and start again. I don't know the answer, but I, I think those sort of um, – uh, what's the term? Those sort of uh, tensions in the system could well bring about a conversation amongst policymakers and a desire for change. Okay, well, let's hope that uh, as and when it happens, that it's a smooth transition rather than uh, too much of a shock. Oh, definitely. You want to hope for that. Yeah. <laughs> Prepare for the worst, hope for the best. Exactly, exactly. Can we turn to um, fiscal policy for a bit, or at least government policy? And obviously, governments around the world took the view this year that um, they had an obligation to help um, society by providing very broad, widespread support. And um, you know, almost, you know, governments almost everywhere around the world have taken this view. And um, obviously that's been uh, very much appreciated by populations. But what happens when these support mechanisms stop or at least change in their nature. And we're starting to see that in the UK at the moment. Obviously, the new job support scheme is relatively generous, but less generous than what it replaces. Mm. It's a great it's a great question. I mean, I, and, and really, our sort of global macro theme has been, um, excuse me, inflationary boom or deflationary bust. That, that, that kind of you can see a lot of the problems under the, under the surface in terms of rising delinquency rates, you know, in uh, commercial real estate and, and all these challenges. And equally, if policymakers keep on giving, you end up with the inflationary boom. So, I, I think if you withdraw it too early, you you end, you you push you tip the economy back towards the the bus challenges. If you leave it in too long, you end up stoking inflation um, and potentially stagflation further down the line. So, but if you get it right, you know you, you've got a you've got some uh, some growing housing market strength, the growing wealth effect, and a growing consumption boom potential that can can take up the running. I mean, economies don't have to live all the time on on stimulus. Once they get their own momentum and, and multiplier effects, then they can live off off their own um, their own strength, if you like. So, so so handing it over is pretty hard. Um, and there's a real risk that if you do it too early, you end up in a, in a bad scenario. Um, and I think it's very tricky for policymakers. And it's, 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 it's above and beyond that as well, of course, because populations become hooked on this stuff. So politically, it becomes very difficult to do. Um, and of course, you know, what, what do we have? Nine million on, on furlough or whatever. There's, there's an awful lot of people, third of the working age, the working population living off this, this government largesse. So, it is extraordinary times. I think it'd be very challenging to stop it, which is probably why we're more likely to get, end up with the, the inflationary boom scenario um, than, than the deflationary bust. So, so what does all this mean for the credit cycle? Obviously, government policies have um, arguably prevented the, you know, a very sharp rise in defaults. Um, but uh, again, once policy stops being so supportive, Perhaps that cycle starts again. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think again, there's a couple of things worth worth thinking about. I mean, one will will government support stop at a time when commercial banks have provisioned enough, and we've seen in the last quarter 
uh, in Q2, commercial banks, you know, in the US, the big ones provisioned as much as they did in any quarter in the GFC. Now they need to do that for a few quarters, but you know, they could do that through to the end of the year and then government stimulus comes off in 21, perhaps in certain areas and commercial banks might be in a position to absorb it, in which case the economy can, can carry on through in my opinion. But, you know, there's, there's that challenge. Uh, I think, uh, uh, but there's also the case that, you know, maybe governments just keep going on beyond that. I mean, it's incredible how much, how many different parts of the economy they've been backstopping. Um, the CARES Act, uh, the US stimulus, fiscal stimulus package had provision for 180 day mortgage loan forbearance for anyone that wanted it. Um, and an extension of 180 days on top of that. So a year, basically, you can go without paying your mortgage in the States if you want to. And, and um, you know, different countries have had different amounts of provision, but um, they keep getting extended. So, so that, that, you know, back to the dilemma, what do policymakers do? And, um, you know, they're pretty populist these days, so they seem pretty keen to keep, keep the largesse going. Um, so I think if they stop, there'll be challenges, but... I think for choice they look like they want they want to keep at it. So do you think there comes a point at which markets just push back against the massive deficits and massive amount of debt that's already outstanding? I think when inflation starts to rear its head, bond yields start to back up. And initially that'll be met by yield curve control and pushback from central banks. But of course, the more they print money to co- control the yield curve, the more they stoke the inflationary boom the more they get inflation. So at some stage, there will be some real challenges. Um, And yeah, I think um, policymakers will need, you know, they're going to get into an unpleasant vicious cycle if they're not careful. And they'll need to, and and, and the other thing is currencies may accelerate that. You may get significant volatility in currencies, which means marked sell-offs basically. Uh, but, uh, you know, what central bankers call significant volatility. Uh, and central banks may need to defend their currency against that and therefore tighten up liquidity. And, of course, if you're tightening up liquidity and what what all this liquidity has done, one of the main things it's done is created very expensive stock markets. And you start tightening that liquidity up, you take that support away from that expensive stock market and you could easily pop a, a bubble and reverse that psychology and you get a, a significant downdraft in in economies and some real challenges then for policymakers at a time with too much inflation and markets going down and needing to defend currencies. I think I think that's a quite a, a troubling combination which which is out there. I wouldn't I wouldn't put it down for the first half of next year. Maybe not the second half, but uh, it's certainly on a on a two three year four year view, it's a, a real possibility. There's a brewing cocktail, I think. But currencies are always of interest to uh, to our, our clients and internally what are your thoughts on currencies i mean obviously they're they're relative prices you can't have all currencies appreciating at the same time some they have to appreciate against something so um what do you you know if all central banks are engaging these actions if all the world is experiencing the same forces that you've described uh, which are the currencies that benefit and which are the ones that you think suffer yeah, I mean, my rule of thumb is really the US kind of decides its own destiny. So when they're particularly loose, they, they tend to see the dollar go down. When they tighten up, uh, the dollar tends to rally. And, and of course, you know, two thirds of the world's financial assets are priced in dollars and two thirds of the world trade is, is in dollars or 60% of it. So that is the dominant currency and, and the Fed is dominant in, in terms of driving 
its direction with its looseness or tightness. Uh, and, and at the moment, in conjunction with the with the US Treasury, as you know there, the government's trashing its balance sheet and the Fed's trashing its balance sheet. So for me, the dominant trend is, you know, a dollar down over a multi-month period. At the moment, we're pausing on that because, of course, from May to August, we had a pretty good downdraft in the dollar. It got a little bit carried away. It's now unwinding. And I, I think it may well be starting again uh, at the moment, as we see, there's been some some recent weakness against the euro again um, by the dollar. So uh, I think until US policymakers tighten up their act, which I can't see happening for an awful long time, um, the dollar the dollar downdraft is the most likely dominant trade. But but the other way of thinking about it is thinking about everything against gold, or think about even everything against Bitcoin. I mean, Bitcoin for me is probably the most speculative instrument out there. It's a, so it's a pure liquidity play. It's a restricted supply, as we know, in a world of increasing dollar liquidity and new dollars. And of course, in dollar terms, therefore, Bitcoin is is going up and, and in a nice uptrend. I mean, it's paused, like the dollar's paused on its downtrend. Bitcoin's paused on its uptrend since sort of the uh, last few weeks. But I would expect that to resume as well. So, you know, I, li- I like um, uh, precious metals where there's limited supply and Certain digital currencies is obviously fraud, fraud risk in some of them, um, but um, but equally I think the dollar down against that, um, and then I think the euro the euro up unless the ECB starts to up its looseness game, and I think they've got some real challenges there. They've they've clearly brought out a new monetary policy review in the last uh, yesterday, so they're thinking about following the Fed on on the average type target. But um, I think they're going to struggle to get the euro weaker against the dollar here because the dominant trend, I think, is, is, is dollar down. Look, you mentioned China a bit earlier. And uh, you know, last year, in fact, for much of the past uh, 18 months, China very much dominated the headlines in terms of uh, the US-China trade war. But that's obviously taken second fiddle this year to COVID and more recently the US presidential election. How do you think uh, China-US relations are going to play out after the election? I, I, well, I mean, it depends who, who wins, but there's certainly a bipartisan push, as we all know, against China from the US. And what Trump's really got going is not going to stop. The pace of it may slow in terms of the breaking apart and the, and the rise of the bamboo curtain and the, and the two technology areas arising in the world and China leading one and the US, the other. So, I mean, that, those trends are in place, and but I think they'll move faster if Trump's in power than if Biden's in power. I think Biden's made much better noises about China in the past, of course. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a very important part of of all sorts of things. Deglobalization is really, in many ways, driven in large part by that. You know, the the, the sort of changing supply chains and all that sort of stuff. And all of that's inflationary as well. Uh, the two technology systems and clearly the rising geopolitical risks. We saw it with Hong Kong. You saw China crossing the, um, the Taiwanese Straits a couple of weekends ago. There's clearly much more banging of the drum from China than there has been in the past. So all of these issues are there um, uh, and real and, and, and will be challenges for markets and as well as being inflationary, um, should have an impact on risk premiums. I mean, the world's a riskier place, so over time, risk premiums should widen to reflect that. So I, I, I think that 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 motion, that train has left the station, if you like, and it's slowly those two two parts of the world are breaking apart, and I don't think that's going to change whoever's in charge. 
And in terms of China, what do you think are the main risks that the country faces? Um, personally, I think China is um, overextended in, in all sorts of ways. It's managed it very well so far. But for me, China is a bit like Japan in the late 1980s. They've done a lot of credit allocation to a lot of industries that aren't really profitable. There's an awful lot of bad debts in the economy sitting under the surface. There's uh, overcapacity in, in housing. There's a housing bubble. There's overcapacity in infrastructure. There's a lot of um, state-owned enterprises, a bit like the Chai Bowls and the Southeast Asian Tigers, where margins are pretty trivial and they're really an extension of the state. So, you know, I mean, China can manage it and has managed it well for the last 10 years. But as we know, the banking system's gone from one times to three times GDP, something like that. Um, the, um, you know, the debt in the economy's picked up enormously in the last 10 years. And I think if China breaks apart slowly but surely from the rest of the world, and it's going to struggle, I think, to maintain um, its pace of growth. I think it, it'll be some real challenges. I mean, the demographics, of course. I mean, it's a long list, as you know. Um, so I, for me, I don't think China's going to run the world. I think they've overdone it in the way they've run the economy. Um, and I think they'll turn out to be a bit like Russia was in the 50s, sounded great and then went pear-shaped and Japan in the 80s, everyone thought it was going to run the world and then didn't. Um, and yeah, I think it's on the, on the, on that trajectory. And, you know, it's clearly rejected move towards democracy. It, it doesn't really allow price discovery to, to any great degree. And I think, um, you know, there's, there are some good technology companies, but, you know, there has been clearly a lot of intellectual property theft over years, and that's going to get harder and harder to do. So, uh, you know, in the medium term, I think China has a lot of challenges. So, so do you think they can successfully transition away from this export-led manufacturing model towards a more service-driven consumption-based model, as I've been talking about for the past few years? Yeah, they've been doing that for sure. And we've had a consumer credit boom and a mortgage boom. I think mortgage growth in tier two cities at the moment is running about 40% year on year. Um, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's booming. Um, so it's more inward looking already. And I think that's been happening for the last five, six, seven, eight years. And of course, that you know that's kind of your last throw of the dice. Really, you've done you've done your export boom, you've done your infrastructure, you built everything. Uh, and then you, you 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 then you pump up the housing market and you pump up consumer credit, and you know government debt's already pumped up. There's not many sectors of the economy left to drive it. That's kind of your last roll of the dice. So, uh, you know, I think it's um, you know it's been a good journey, but I think they've they've shot a lot of their bolts, if you like. How do you think the rest of Asia responds to China? Obviously, much of the rest of Asia is aligned, at least politically and militarily, with the US. But if the world bifurcates, as you sort of describe, then that you know, potentially creates a difficult scenario for countries like you know, Japan and South Korea. Yeah, I think it'd be very challenging. And Australia, New Zealand... Um, but I suppose what you do is you'll end up with two blocks, won't you? They're those who've gone with China primarily, whoever that is, are, you know, difficult to, to say for sure. But um, and those that have gone with America, I mean, it's um, you've got to pick sides. And um, I suppose Australia's increasingly obviously picking a side, whereas they were, they were much more foot in two camps. Japan clearly will go with America. Um, India, of course, sides 
I think, with America, and, and it is a nice buffer in terms of population size. It needs to develop more. Um, and then, you know, a lot of the second line is difficult to know. I mean, they're largely probably be bullied many of them into into going to the chinese camp or economically have no choice so it's going to be fascinating and i think one by one they'll they'll take their choices and, and it will matter what the u.s leadership does and offers and the way it's seen as a, a trusted partner or not will be very important so you know whether or not they come to the defense of of countries that they've committed to come to the defense of or not if 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 it gets to that situation and and so on so We'll have to watch. I mean, I think, uh, yeah, people will be they're picking their sides. I think that, that, that's the way it's going, sad, sad as it is. Well, look, Chris, you've described a world in which we see a V-shaped recovery. Uh, you cited the risk of inflation. Uh, we've discussed the sort of limits and benefits of the huge policy support we've seen. And obviously, you've also discussed the expected continued bifurcation of the world into a Chinese-led bloc and a US-led bloc. I just want to finish off by asking you, what would be your advice for any budding young economists or strategists out there? Yeah, I love that's a great question. I, I've been thinking about that. And my advice would be, don't believe a word you read in the textbooks. Um, I, I actually think economists should be engineers. Uh, forget the theory, just take things apart. And, and then you start to understand how they work. And um, start with, uh, I think, Professor Richard Werner's uh, thesis on banking, um, how bank, banking systems work, the three theses on that, which tell you a good, um, give you good insights into how money's created, how liquidity goes around the system, uh, and credit cycles. And I think enormous amount to be learned from that. So yeah, be an engineer, don't be an economist. Take it apart, understand the moving parts. And I think you'll then start to understand how the economy really works. Fantastic. Chris, thank you very much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, Thank you. Hopefully thank we'll you. Absolutely great soon. fun. Thanks a lot. Really enjoyed it. Appreciate it. Cheers, Chris. So that was a great chat we had with Chris there. Gave us lots of insight into his thoughts and opinions on the macro outlook. So uh, thanks very much again, Chris. Uh, thanks very much to everybody for listening and look forward to welcoming you to the podcast in the future.